Welcome to Haunting History, the podcast that reaches back into the past for the events that still haunt us today. Tales of true crime, mystery, and the macabre. And when we're lucky, the stories were history and the people who lived it and the paranormal me. Now who doesn't love a good ghost story, right? Welcome back to Haunting History Podcast. I'm your host, Kat. And I'm Haley. And we are at part two of Bonnie and Clyde. With their new notoriety, their daily lives became more difficult as they tried to evade discovery. Where we left off in part one is they had stolen Darby's car and kidnapped Sophie and Darby and joked about how he would be the undertaker when they died. This is after the police had the Joplin gunfight when the police had found their undeveloped film and all the newspapers around the pictures of them every newspaper in the nation was running photos of bonnie and clyde and so restaurants and motel- motels became less secure they resorted to campfire cooking and bathing in cold streams the unrelieved round the clock proximity of five people in one car gave rise to vicious bickering so now the car has blanche buck clyde Bonnie and JD. Remember, and they're injured too. JD had been grazed by a gun and Buck had been hit by a ricochet. So they can't, it's not like they can go to a hospital or a doctor, right? Um, on June 10th, near Wellington, Texas, while driving, Clyde missed a warning that there was a construction site on a bridge and he reacted really late and the car flipped into a ravine. Clyde and Jones were thrown from the car, but Bonnie was trapped underneath it with the car igniting on fire. She suffered severe third-degree burns on her right leg. The, it was so severe that the muscles contracted and deformed her leg. Never went to a hospital. Jones, an eyewitness, obviously, he was in the car, vividly described it. For some reason, at this point, there was two cars. So Blanche and Buck were in the other car, and Bonnie, Klein, and JD were in the car that flipped. So Blanche and Buck following them, like, stopped. And, like, other people stopped to help them, not knowing they were Bonnie and Clyde. But like they had to have people help them lift the car off of Bonnie. Joan said that she had burned so bad that none of us thought she was going to live. The hide, he called it the hide in her skin, on her right leg was gone from her hip down to her ankle. You could actually see the bone in places. Parker's mobility was severely impaired, forcing her to either hop on her remaining good leg or be carried by Clyde. Assistance was sought from a nearby farm family, after which the group proceeded to kidnap Collinsworth County Sheriff George Corey and City Marshal Paul Hardy. The law enforcement officials were subsequently left handcuffed and barbed wired to a tree outside Eric, Oklahoma. And Blanche talks a lot about Bonnie's injuries, that Blanche was basically left to take care of Bonnie, basically, because, you know, the other ones were going out and robbing stores and banks. And um, they really didn't think there were nights where they did not think Bonnie was going to survive that her injuries were so severe. Following the incidents, the group met back up with Buck and Blanche and hid out at a tourist court in Fort Smith, Arkansas. I don't know what a tourist court is. I'm picturing it like how now we have RV parks. I'm picturing tourist courts like that, but instead of like RVs, it was little cabins because they went to a lot of tourist parks. They tried to take care of Bonnie's burn injuries there. And, and they, Blanche, because Blanche had like no record and there were no pictures of Blanche anywhere, she was the one that would have to go out to stores and get them food. She was the one that would have to buy all the stuff for Bonnie bandages. And what did they know about taking care of a burn that severe? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? 
in her book, though, if anybody wants to read um, Blanche Barrow's book, she goes into more detail on what they used and how they cared for her. Not as much detail as I kind of wanted, and I don't know why I wanted that. They, they stayed at the tourist co- court as opposed to the camping that they had been doing, um, basically because it was more sanitary to take care of Bonnie. But the problem was is that Buck and Jones botched a robbery resulting in the murder of town marshal Henry Humphrey in Arkansas. They had to go back on the run, regardless of the critical condition of Bonnie. A month later, near Platt, Missouri, Platt City, Missouri, Bonnie, Clyde, Buck, Blanche, and Jones secured two cabins at the Red Crown Tavern. On July 19th, 1933, acting on a tip from locals, police encircled the cabin. Now, this time they know they're looking for Bonnie and Clyde, right? Because now they're in every paper. At 11 p.m., the cabin door, this is, this is an, from a newspaper, at 11 p.m., a cabin door echoed with the pounding of a policeman. In response, Blanche calmly stated, just a moment, let me get dressed, affording Clyde the time to grab his Browning automatic and fire. As the others sought cover, Buck, like, instead of Buck going, like, hiding from being shot, he persisted in shooting and received what would become a fatal head wound. Gathering everyone, including the injured Buck and his injured girlfriend, Clyde led the group towards the garage. They would always park in the garage. And what's funny is one of the articles said that the owner of the tourist court figured out who they were because of not how they looked. Like, he looked at how they looked after, but because they backed the car into the garage. And he thought that was suspicious, like, to make a getaway. Like, why does he have to back the car into the garage? And that's what made him look at who they were. So that's the tips from the locals came from that. As they were running to the garage, police punctured two of the tires with shots and shattered a window. The window and the flying shards of glass hit Blanche in the eye. Throughout the night and following day, Clyde drove incessantly, pausing only to change bandages and replace tires. So now they have Bonnie, who's injured, who's still bandaged up. Blanche is bleeding profusely from one of her eyes. And her husband has a severe head wound. And was bleeding. So, like, he's just driving and all these people are in a car. Can you even imagine? They were just driving incessantly. And these are not when they had highways. These are dirt gravel roads. And they're driving around with all these people in the car. Over half of them are severely injured. They ended up stopping at Dex Field Park Recreation Area, not knowing that the police had been alerted to their presence by a local farmer. Now, they had killed a bunch of people. Now, I don't even know what number they're up to. So... Now, people know who they are. And a local farmer saw them and then found bloody bandages. It was like, who is this? Why is this here? Alerts the police. More than 100 law enforcement officers, National Guardsmen, vigilantes, and local farmers converged on them. And it's the story that Blanche tells in her book. I know I keep going back and forth to Blanche's story, but they're at like a recreation park. Bonnie severely injured. Buck is severely injured. Blanche had, had her glass in her eye. She couldn't see out of her eye. And they're outdoors. Do you know what I mean? Like, they're in a camp area. And the police are now after them. They had shot. They had already done the Joplin thing. They Things were being more, at, like, attributed to the Barrio gang. So they know, law enforcement knows they're going after them. But the nationwide attention to them hadn't completely changed yet. People were not totally against Bonnie and Clyde yet. I mean, I think they were probably getting more against them, but 
still, I think people still kind of thought of them as like a Robin Hood thing. On the morning of July 24th, the police closed in. A scream from Bonnie alerted Clyde and Jones, who swiftly retrieved their firearms and began firing. Black, immobilized but still able, continued shooting and suffered multiple gunshot wounds. Blanche stayed by his side, literally in a clearing of a field. Clyde, attempting to escape, jumped into the car, but was struck in the arm and crashed into a tree. He, along with Bonnie and Jones, fled on foot and swam across the river. Clyde then stole another vehicle and drove the three of them away. And it's more detailed than that. I don't know that it matters. But Clyde separated from um, Bonnie and JD. And JD ended up carrying Bonnie. And then they really did cross a swim across the river with Bonnie with her leg completely destroyed. <sighs> That's how desperate they were to get away, right? They left Buck and Blanche there, though. There was no... Buck was already had the fatal what would turn out to be his fatal wound and then he was shot more times this is where blanche gets arrested buck goes to a hospital is arrested too but goes to a hospital but blanche goes into detail about what happened to them and it's it's such a good book i don't i highly recommend it there's so many books about them but i really liked her book ultimately buck died from his injuries a few days later and blanche was arrested clyde had sustained four gunshot wounds while bonnie had been peppered with numerous buckshot pellets Jones, who had taken a bullet to the head, made a daring escape and never returned. His was clearly not fatal, and he was done. He's like, okay, this, like, we've been shot at by gangs in the last couple days. Like, I'm done. After several months of recuperating with the help of their mothers and sisters, which they always stayed in touch with their family, somehow, like, Clyde would drive by the gas station or filling station and, like, throw a bottle out, and his mom would hear the bottle go outside and there'd be a note of where to meet them at. So the family, like they, I'm sure they switched houses from house to house to house, but in family friends and distant relatives, um, they recuperated for a couple months and got Bonnie back. And he had been shot too. He, I'm so curious, like x-rays, like how many times they'd been shot, like how many bullets they had in their body before the actual, their actual death. Yeah. Like, um, they had to be careful, though, because they were not only famous and recognizable from the photos in the paper, they were also the top of America's Most Wanted by now. They now realized that they that any local they run into could recognize them and contact law enforcement. And they don't have Blanche anymore. Blanche is now arrested and Buck is dead. So the only way, it's just Bonnie and Clyde right now. And they can't go anywhere. To avoid scrutiny, they slept in their car at night and drove during the day. I think actually that's opposite. I think they slept during the day and drove at night in late November, 1933 Jones, who had disappeared after the last shootout was captured and told his police his story to the police who learned of the close ties between Bonnie and Clyde and their families. Jones kind of ratted them out. So now the families are being starting to be watched. And I know that it seems slow compared to nowadays, like nowadays they would be on people's Facebook and Instagram and know who the family was within sec. I mean, like something happens like as awful as it sounds like there'd be a shooting at a school internet warriors know who the mom dad uncle cousin within minutes do you know what i mean yeah but back then it wasn't like everything took longer obviously the police started to watch the families and police could establish they wanted to establish an ambush when bonnie and clyde tried to contact them on november 22nd they narrowly evaded arrest while trying to meet with family members near sowers texas Dallas Sheriff Schmoot Schmid, his name is Schmoot Schmid, and Deputy Bob Alcorn and Deputy Ted Hinton, 
This Ted Hinton is the one that knew her from the diner. He's now a Dallas County Sheriff. Lay in wait nearby as Barrow drove up. See, and this is a thing that kept Bonnie and Clyde along, alive for this four years of this crime spree they did. Clyde Barrow had instincts and he followed them. Do you know what I'm saying? Like he avoided arrest and being shot for four years because he paid attention yeah. to how he was feeling. He sensed it was a trap when he was going to meet his family. So he drove right past the family car, at which point Schmid, Schmidt, Schmid, and his deputy stood up and opened fire with machine guns. The family members were caught in the crossfire, fire were not hit though, but a bullet passed through the car, striking the legs of both Barrow and Park. What were they made of that they could get shot and just keep going? I don't know. All the time. On November 20th, a Dallas grand jury delivered a murder indictment against Parker and Barrow. In January of that year, nearly 10 months earlier, of Tarrant County Deputy Malcolm Davis, it was Parker's first warrant for murder. Still not knowing if she ever shot anyone. Right. When the ambush attempt endangered their mothers, Clyde became furious. Again, he's already mad at law enforcement, so now he's even more mad at them because they almost killed the mommies. He wanted to retaliate against the lawmen, but his family convinced him that it wouldn't be smart. Rather than seek revenge on those who had threatened his family, Clyde turned his focus back to East Ham Prison Farm, the one that he was planning to raid and release all the prisoners from anyways. In January 1934, they helped Clyde's old friend, Raymond Hamilton, break out. A guard was killed and another critically injured. Several prisoners hopped in the getaway car. I mean, wouldn't you? One of those prisoners was Henry Methvin. After the other convicts went their own ways, including Hamilton, who left after he got in a fight with Clyde, which is really funny. He got in a Clyde. <laughs> so weird. Remember the name Henry Methvin. He was not the intentional one to break out of prison. They went to break out Hamilton. Oh, I can never say his name. Henry Methvin plays a very large part in the end of Bonnie and Clyde. And ironically, they broke him out of prison. Like. Accidentally. Right. They didn't. He just happened to jump in the car. Yeah. And what's funny is that Hamilton, the one that they got out of prison, he didn't want those other guys to get out of prison. He told them to go back. He said, screw you, Bonnie and Clyde are coming in for me. Just because it's an opportunity, you don't get to take it, go back. Clyde said, no, we want more gang members. Like, let them, they can stay. They're cool. Like, we're fine with it. And then Hamilton, who they broke out of prison, that's his friend. That's who he wanted with him. They ended up getting in a fight because Hamilton wanted his girlfriend with him. And nobody liked his girlfriend for some reason. And they got in a fight all because of the girlfriend. So they broke him out of prison and... Then he got in a fight about his girlfriend, and they accidentally let out the guy that was going to play a major part in the ending of their lives. The breakout at the prison and the killing and wounding of the guard attracted the full power of the state of Texas and the federal government. Bonnie and Clyde had to be stopped, because now they've just taken two other lives. The former captain of the Texas Rangers, a man named Frank Hammer, was contacted and persuaded to hunt down the gang. He had already retired, but was given the task of hunting them down and bringing them to justice, dead or alive. Hammer had a formidable reputation for his captures and killing of several Texas criminals. And people thought he was the only one that was going to catch them, right? And before I say this, law enforcement was 100% wanted Bonnie and Clyde dead or alive. They did not care how they got them. They just wanted them off the street, wiped from the planet. Yeah. But the public has still not totally turned on Bonnie and Clyde. 
particularly those who felt marginalized, treated bad by law enforcement. To them, Bonnie and Clyde were still technically heroes, right? The public is still for them. Law enforcement is completely against them. So, I mean, other than people with, like, common sense. Do you know what I mean? Like, the everyday people were like, no, they're killing freaking everybody. But they were really, really, really killing mostly law enforcement. For several months, Frank Hammer was a step behind. He would show up a day or two after they had been somewhere and tracking people. He knew what he was doing. He knew, obviously, what he was doing. And the state of Texas had faith that Frank Hammer was going to be the one that was going to catch Bonnie and Clyde. On Easter Sunday, 1934, the remaining gang, which is Methvin, the one that stayed, that wasn't supposed to be let out of prison, but he stayed with Bonnie and Clyde. And Bonnie and Clyde waited on the side of Dove Road near the intersection of Highway 114 outside of Grapevine, Texas. Clyde had arranged to get together with both families at the isolated spot. They couldn't go near West Dallas anymore because they were fugitives. Obviously, everybody knew who they were. Um, they were now had a warrants against them. They were public enemy number one. As they waited, Clyde napped in the back seat. Bonnie sat on the grass and Mel Methvin stood watch. State troopers E.B. Wheeler, who was 26 years old, and H.D. Murphy, who was 24, who, by the way, happened to be on his first day of the job after his training. This was his first day actually out working. They were on their motorcycles going north on Highway 114 when they noticed the black Ford and assumed it was a driver in need. So they turned around and came up behind the car and got off their motorcycles and started to walk toward the car. Bonnie, as they were pulling up, woke up Clyde, who grabbed his automatic, and it said he yelled to Methvin, let's take them, meaning, and I do not know where this story comes from. I don't know if somehow this is written down or Clyde told someone, I think Clyde actually told someone later, to be honest. He said he yelled to Methvin, let's take them, meaning kidnap them, take them hostage. But Methvin, yeah, again, the guy that jumped in the car at the prison break, who was a criminal in his own right, misunderstood him yelling out, let's take them, and open fire. Both men dropped to the ground. They had barely gotten off their motorcycles. And then, just to be certain that they were dead, Methvin walked over and shot the two dying officers again. H.G. Murphy was supposed to get married a week later. His bride wore her wedding dress to his funeral. Ugh. This killing would be the nail in the coffin for Bonnie and Clyde. The public 1,000% turned against him. Yeah. Like, Finally. It, it was already bad enough that they were killing, you know, law enforcement, but they were still able in their mind to justify that Bonnie and Clyde were just trying to live their life and get money, you know, like survive. And all these police officers kept trying to stop them. This was in cold blood. And it was a 26-year-old and a 24-year-old. Completely innocent men that just pulled up to help. Yeah. Public, totally against them. Now, now it's not law enforcement anymore that's against them. It is the entire nation. And everybody wanted them dead or alive. Nobody cared. And they wanted it done before another person was killed. And it, 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 it gives homage to, like, how much the media, I mean, even... Now the media has so much power over us and how we think and feel and respond to things. And then now on top of it, we have social media that does the same things. Back then when news was slower to get around, the media still had that same power way back then. Yeah. And 
they were the ones that promoted Bonnie and Clyde as this romanticized couple. And then they were also the ones that took them down. And the fact that the, the Murphy's fiance was photographed incessantly because now these two officers, the, the two officers being murdered would be in the news anyways, but now they're in the news because they were killed by Bonnie and Clyde. And the, the fact that the, the fiance wore her wedding dress and was in all the pictures in the newspaper wearing it, they just gained sympathy immediately. Yeah. Public hostility increased five days later when Barrow and Methvin murdered 60-year-old Constable William Cal Campbell. He was a widower and a father near Commerce, Oklahoma. They kidnapped police chief Percy Boyd and crossed state line into Kansas and then let him go, giving him a clean shirt and a few dollars and a request from Parker to tell the world that she did not smoke cigars. So it kind of tells you a little bit about Bonnie right there. That she wants, first of all, they know they're in the papers all the time now. They probably read them themselves and look at the pictures and stuff. But how disconnected was she from what they were doing, murdering people, that her concern was that people thought she smoked cigars? Right. Like, it kind of gives a lot of insight into who Bonnie Parker was. Boyd identified both Parker and Barrow to the authorities but he didn't know Methvin. At the time, he didn't know who Methvin was. He was just some guy that was part of their gang. Anyway, I kind of want to go back to something really quick. Jones was um, ran away after the big the gunfight. He was like, I'm done. I, I carried Bonnie across a river like I'm out of here. He told the police freaking everything, and that's why the police started watching the families. He also like told the police all kinds of secrets. And supposedly, he was told by Clyde Barrow... Don't go to prison the rest of your life because of me. Put all the murders on me. We're going to die anyways. Like, we're going to, we're not going to live through this. So don't take the rap for everything. Just put everything on me, which I thought was really weird. Because why was Clyde so concerned about the 16-year-old not taking the rap for all the murders, but was fine with murdering you? Like, I, their moral compasses were weird. Just like Bonnie with their, with the cigar, and Clyde, with making sure J.D. protected himself and was fine with everything being pinned on him, where was a moral compass? I mean, I guess people say they, would, they didn't have one. They were murdering people. But it, it's a weird, I don't know, I guess I'm fascinated by the psychology of it, like what they determined right and wrong. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Or what was important? The arrest warrant for Campbell's murder was specifically Clyde Barrow and Bonnie Parker and John Doe. They weren't mentioning Methvin yet. The Dallas Journal ran a cartoon on its editorial page, and this is how you know the public turned against him, showing an empty electric chair with a sign on it saying reserved, and then for Bonnie and Clyde. On the afternoon of April 29th, Clyde stole a 1934 Ford V8, which at the time was a faster vehicle than the police drove, and even Frank Hammer. And it was his favorite car. That's that's what he always stole. He always stole a Ford V8. And he loved the Ford V8 so much, he actually wrote a letter to Henry Ford telling him how great his car was. Again, like where, like the psychology of these two people. The car had been left in the driveway of their, of um the home of, I can't, I don't know if I wrote down their names. They had left the keys in the ignition. People left their keys in the ignition all the time. They had no idea, Clyde Barrow and Bonnie, had no idea this was the last car they were ever going to steal. In May of 1934, Clyde had over 16 warrants against him for theft, robbery, 
and murder in four different states. And Hammer determined that the gang always moved in a circle, staying close to the edges of the five Midwestern states. And this is why he um, stayed close enough to the state lines because of jurisdiction laws. So if he murdered someone in Oklahoma but crossed over into New Mexico or Kansas or whatever, he they would have to extradite him. So like it in his brain, he was protecting himself. Yeah, he was crossing straight lines on and off. Bonnie and Clyde throughout the years, like I said, always visited family regularly. By Hammer's calculations, they were due to visit Methvin's family. That's the other thing too. Now that I'm thinking about it, the psychology of like they were indiscriminate in taking people's lives, but were so ridiculously attached to their families. Like it wasn't that they didn't have the ability to love or understand love or kindness or compassion because they had all kinds of love and compassion for their own families. Yeah. But they were able to like just switch. It's just so weird when you really think about it. They knew that they somehow, and maybe it's from JD saying like how they would plan to meet up if they got separated because that was always a possibility. But Hammer knew, first of all, that they were always going to meet up with family. Somehow, some way, Bunny and Clyde were somehow going to get to where they could see their family for even short periods of time, whether it was to get money or food or just basically see them, let them know that they're still okay. So they knew that Methvin, it was when, if if Methvin, Bunny and Clyde ever got separated, their meetup place was going to be at Methvin's family's parents' house. So... They, the hammer and his posse knew that they would eventually end up there somehow, some way. So they knew they had to watch that house. Hinton, again, the officer who had known Bunny from the diner, a man named Alcorn, B.M. Galt, and two Louisiana officers, Henderson Jordan and Prentice. The names back then are so funny. His name was Henderson Jordan, and which was in this day and age is backwards. It would have been Jordan Henderson. And the other guy's name was Prentice Oakley. Got word that Barrow and Parker were planning to visit the Methvins. They reached out to Methvin's father and they offered clemency for his son if he helped trap Bonnie and Clyde, which I do not understand how they could offer clemency to Methvin. Maybe they didn't know at the time to Methvin to capture Bonnie and Clyde when Methvin is the one who shot the two motorcycle officers. Like, how could they, they wanted Bonnie and Clyde so bad they were going to let Methvin get away with killing those two officers? Yeah, seems backwards, but. Not only that, it seems like, why would, it, like, he gets away with that murder? But anyways, that's what they did. So on the evening of May 22nd, the members of the posse set up an ambush along 154, and they waited. Come back next week for our final episode on Bonnie and Clyde. Thank you for listening to this episode of Haunting History Podcast. We love hearing from you, so be sure to like, follow, and comment on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Haunting History Podcast. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to all your favorites. Visit our website at hauntinghistorypodcast.com for more information on each episode, links to our Patreon page, and all of our social media platforms. Until next time, I'm Kat. I'm Haley. Remember, the living are far scarier than any gun.